Uh, thanks for being here with us today. My name is Paul Mumaw. I'm the lead pastor here. And what is it? It's July 22nd. We're kind of in the kind of those days of summer. People are getting in those last vacations before school starts. But uh, thanks for being here uh, for our 12 o'clock service. You know, we've got the good news of 31,968 meals packed. Uh, you guys probably know Josh and Heidi Tandy, our student group's pastor here. They had their baby this past week, uh, and so we're celebrating with them, baby Isaac, and, and he's doing well. Uh, I also wanted to bring you up to speed briefly on the fact that I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that T-Rock, who's been serving as our Gen Kids director uh, for about four years now, is transitioning to an administrative role onto our team, uh, chose to do that, and with getting married, uh, just kind of works up, uh, works along with, you know, kind of changes in life and everything, and we appreciate all she's done. I'm excited to announce to you today that we've hired a new Gen Kids director. Uh, her name is Brittany Hensley. Uh, Brittany and Matt have been coming to Genesis for the last couple of years. She's been serving as a special ed teacher in the Hamilton Heights School District for about five years now, a graduate of Indiana Wesleyan University, and she's going to be joining our team next weekend and uh, looking forward to you having the opportunity to get to know her and um, our Carmel campus launch today. And so uh, that's really exciting. Uh, they had a service at 1030 today. I haven't heard how things went. Uh, I was going to go check my phone and see if I had a message, but didn't get a chance to. But uh, we're really excited. And, and, and I don't think that, um, well, I know that I'm guilty. That I just don't know if we can really appreciate how awesome it is that we get to do what we get to do. That, that God is blessing us working, you know, through our church and each of you to even start another campus. And it's just going to be so fun over the next couple of years to see what God does there and what God does here is he's not finished in either place yet. And uh, so let's be encouraged and uh, give our all uh, for him. Will you pray with me before we get rolling? Uh, God, I thank you for this day and uh, thank you for each of our services today, Lord, for all those who have come for this service now. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for uh, the Carmel campus and, and pray for their day, God, and just trusting that <clears throat> there may have been some new people that came today. And even as they leave, the work that you're doing in their life, uh, may, be, may they be encouraged and find their hope in you. Uh, God, thank you for this time right now. And uh, with this topic today, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts to hear from you and no one else, that you would meet us in our fear, uh, that you would meet us in our hurt. Uh, that you would meet us in our questions and, and maybe even in an unwillingness to forgive and to reconcile, Lord. I pray that we might, we might find hope in you. And I pray that our response today, no matter how we may personally feel, would be obedience. And God, you would help us to take every step. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, any roller coaster fans in the room? Anybody? We got, okay, lots of hands going up. I, um, I, I love roller coasters, but it's been probably a few years since I've been on a roller coaster. And to be honest with you, I don't know how I do with them anymore. Now, I, yes, I am only 36, all right, but things change, right? For example, I was at the park probably a few weeks ago with my kids, and I was swinging my little girl, Kate. She's four, and she was like, well, Daddy, why don't you get on the swing next to me? So I just started swinging and going as high as I could. Well, I got off, and it was like motion sickness. It was like my – and I don't know. Have you ever gotten on the, the, the merry-go-round at the playground? Yeah, go there. Give that a try, you know? I mean, it, it's 
just, it's amazing how things change. And so I love roller coasters, but I haven't always loved them. In fact, when I was a kid, I, I did not like roller coasters at all. In fact, I didn't go on my first roller coaster until I was in high school. All right, and I grew up in central Illinois, and about once a year, once a summer, we would go down to the St. Louis area to Six Flags over Mid America. Uh, and so every year we'd go down there, and I'd always look forward to it. But there was a roller coaster there that had all it just it the fear in me that it was called the screaming eagle all right and the screaming eagle wasn't one of these high-tech roller coasters that you see today that spins and goes upside down this is just an old-fashioned wood roller coaster that as a kid looks like it touches the clouds i mean and and so i was terrified every year when it was time to go to six flags because i knew that my dad was going to try and talk me in to getting on that roller coaster and i wanted nothing to do with it and i never gave in all the years living at home. I mean, to this day, I have never been on a roller coaster with my dad because it wasn't until high school that I finally got on the Screaming Eagle. And well, you know, it took a girl. It, it took a girl to get me on there. And I never let on that I had never been on this ride before and that I was terrified. But thankfully, you know, I enjoyed it and, and appreciated the ride. And so I, I do have this appreciation, kind of a, a love-hate sort of relationship with roller coasters. Well, we're continuing in our Amazing Stories series today, and, and we're looking at the life of Joseph. And when I say Joseph, I'm not talking about Jesus' dad, Joseph. We're, we're Old Testament Joseph, Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph. Now, you might ask, well, what in the world do roller coasters have to do with Joseph? Well, if you're familiar with this story, if you read it for yourself in Genesis and the little bit that we're going to look at today, it is every bit of an up and down, sideways, twists and turns. You don't know what's coming around every corner, sort of story. And, and, but thankfully, Joseph knew God. He knew God and he served God and he lived for God. And the scriptures say that all throughout history, all throughout the story, God was with Joseph. It says it over and over again. In the good times and the bad times, God was with Joseph. Now, while there are many different sides and different, different aspects of the story that are worth considering here today, what I want to do is I want to focus in on the role that forgiveness and specifically reconciliation played in the story in the life of Joseph and his family because his willingness to reconcile, to forgive his brothers says a lot about the life that God has called you and me to as his people, as his children, and as his church. Now, just to give you a little bit of a background, Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons and Joseph was his dad's favorite. All right, which, as you can imagine, created some jealousy and some animosity in this family. And the jealousy became so great that we learned that eventually Joseph's brothers were plotting how they might kill him. Now, I had some younger sisters, all right, as a, well, a big brother. And I'm sure that I did some cruel and even some mean things to them, but obviously nothing to this extreme. Well, as the story goes, one day... Joseph's brothers uh, take him out into the wilderness. Now, he's probably thinking, yeah, we're going to go play some paintball or some capture the flag or something like that with my, my brothers. But instead, they beat him up and they throw him in this hole. And while they're considering killing him, well, just when you think it couldn't get any worse, there's this caravan passing by in the wilderness and they... Well, they sell their brother into slavery. That's just what they do. They sold him into slavery. And so Joseph is now leaving Canaan, not by his choice, but he is now a slave and he's leaving with this caravan and he's on his way to a new home in Egypt. 
Well, fast forward in the story, and we're going to fast forward quite a few times today. While in Egypt, Joseph gets accused of a crime he didn't commit, sort of like the A-Team did, if you ever watched that show. And because of this, he ends up in prison, and not just for a short stay, but history indicates that he spent anywhere from 10 to 13 years in prison until one day he finds favor with the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And because of this favor, Joseph ends up going from the prison to the palace where he eventually rises to second in command in Egypt, but really in the world for that matter, because Egypt was the most powerful empire. Genesis 41, verse 41 says this. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine robes uh, and, and fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. I mean, just after all of this pain, after all of this betrayal, after all of this abuse, wouldn't you know it, Joseph ends up rising to become the second most powerful man in the world. Now, Joseph is in charge of just about everything in Egypt, including the distribution of food. Now, the distribution of food, that might not sound like that significant of a role, but it's a pretty important detail in Joseph's story because God spoke to Joseph and told Joseph that there's going to be a major famine in this world, in this part of the world. And so as a result, Joseph dedicated a majority of his time preparing the people of Egypt for this coming famine. And so the Bible says that for seven years, they stored up important resources and foods. And when those seven years ended, the famine came, just as God had predicted, and it was severe. And it didn't take long before the people of Egypt are now turning to Joseph for their means of survival. And not so long after that, people started coming into Egypt from the surrounding countries, also looking for means of survival as this famine has hit a greater part of this world. And so they're turning to the Egyptian government. They're turning to, you know, God because God provided, you know, thanks to God. I mean, you know, and thanks to Joseph, there, there was a means for survival. And so Everyone is coming to Egypt looking for food. And well, guess who shows up one day? Guess who comes walking into town? I mean, I mean, as you can imagine, it was Joseph's brothers. I mean, they came from Canaan, again, looking for food, looking for these means of survival. I mean, it's Joseph's brothers. It's the same guys that sold him into slavery many years before. Now, have you ever been to an awkward family gathering before? Have you ever been to one like that, you know, where you go and there's just all the tension in the room and maybe nobody's talking about it, but it's there. I mean, and everyone knows and maybe it's between two people, but everybody's impacted by it. Well, this is an awkward family gathering. And, and so Joseph's brothers are in Egypt, but well, this is where the story gets a little bizarre. They don't know anything about Joseph. They don't know where he is. They don't know what's become of him. You know, for all they know, he could be dead, but now they stand before him the second most powerful man in the world, and they don't recognize him. I mean, they, they, they can't see who it is. They have no idea whose face they're looking at, but Joseph, he recognizes them. And, well, you know, Joseph has to be thinking to himself, well, 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 you know, what do we have here? How everything has changed. It kind of reminded me, um, so I grew up in this little town, and 
it was like me and like six or seven kids. And it was like me versus six or seven kids. I mean, you could say I was bullied now looking back on it now. And there was one kid in particular, his name was Scott. And he was kind of like the ringleader of it all. And he was always picking on me. And he was only a year older, but he was a lot bigger than me at the time. I mean, I didn't start growing really till high school and even into college. And so, well, we eventually moved away. My dad got a new job, but like 10, 15 years have passed. And I'm back in that same community and I'm in a Kmart one day and and I'm going to check out and the guy who's helping me at the cash register was this Scott and we recognized one another and we were kind of talking and laughing. I mean, you know, we were kids. I mean, I'm not going to hold that against him or whatever, but I got to be honest. Like in that moment, I sort of looked at him like I've grown a bunch and you didn't like you're the same size that you were 10, 15 years ago, you know, and kind of looking at him at that moment thinking, let's go play some kickball. Let's go see how it's changed, man. I mean, you know, I mean, you were always picking on me, you know, let, let, let's even this up here. Well, look what happens in Genesis 42 verse six. It says, now Joseph was governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground as soon as Joseph's brother saw, or saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, again, they didn't recognize him. And so Joseph just starts messing with them. You know, the scripture says that he treats them harshly. You know, first he accuses them of being spies. And then he, he asks them to kind of tell their story to explain themselves. And they, they sort of explain how they're 10 of 12 brothers, that 10 of them are present. One's back at home in Canaan. And, well, there was another brother. And they just, well, they just said, well, we sold him into slavery a long time ago. I mean, they just come right out and say it. I mean, for the first time, you know, the news is in public and... Well, you'd think that this would be a perfect opportunity for Joseph to just kind of barge in and say, well, guess what? (laughs) It's me, you know? I mean, it's like a perfect, it's a reality TV show waiting to happen, but that doesn't happen. You know, instead of breaking the news to them, Joseph throws them into jail. And then it says that after a few days, three days goes by, he finally lets them out. And from there, Joseph says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to travel all the way back to Canaan. And I want you to get your brother that you left behind and bring him back here with you before I'll ever even consider giving you any resources or really to free you for that matter. But just as a way of knowing that you'll come back, you have to leave one of your brothers here with me. And so again, he, he, he's just kind of playing with them, playing these mind games with them. And well, at this point, the brothers huddle up to discuss what their next move is going to be. I mean, remember, again, they don't know this is Joseph. All they know is they've got a serious issue on their hand. I mean, their life is in danger. And, and the Bible says that they are, they, they, they are speaking to one another in their native language. Well, guess who knows that language? Joseph does. And so he's listening in, understanding every word. And how does Joseph respond? Well, these words say it all in Genesis 42, verse 24. It says, he, that's Joseph, turned away from them and began to weep. I mean, there it is. The game finally ends. I mean, you know, again, this, you know, the truth finds its way through. You know, he, Joseph can't bear any longer what he's looking at. I mean, maybe he thought the pain was gone. I mean, maybe he thought he had put it behind him. But in this moment, all of the memories come rushing back in. And we discover that Joseph is just one hurt, devastated young man. And isn't that the way that it kind of works with our personal pain and our personal wounds that we sort of feel like we can maybe push mute on them and they'll go away. Or if you compartmentalize some of those memories and some of that pain, you can 
keep them out of sight so that you don't have to deal with them. And, and every once in a while, like we see here with Joseph, you know, something triggers and, and we're forced to face those memories again. And the pain just comes rushing back into your life. That's kind of what we see here with Joseph. And well, eventually he stops messing with his brothers and he, he just comes right out and he tells them who he is. And, and if he hadn't put the fear of God into them already, all right, now not only are they looking at the face of the second most powerful man in the world, but oh yeah, this is our brother that we sold into slavery. Whoops. But instead of retaliating, as you think Joseph would, I mean, the Bible says that Joseph makes peace with his brothers. He reconciles with them. And even though Joseph was the victim and... Many wouldn't blame him for taking some sort of action. Instead, look at what Joseph says to them in Genesis 45, verse 4. It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph was basically saying this, hey, I know a bunch of junk happened, but guess what? Our God is so good and he is so faithful that he is making the best out of all of this. I mean, what, what maturity I mean, can you imagine, you know, to have that sort of understanding and to be able to have that sort of response, you know, I mean, to say, you know, yeah, I may have lost my job, but I know and I believe that God is still in control. Or I may have lost my marriage, but our God, the God of heaven is still good. Or I might be single, another month not pregnant, but I believe that my God is faithful And he is faithful. He is with me and he will protect me and guide me no matter what I may face. You know, somewhere along the way in his life, Joseph discovered the role that God was asking him to play on this earth. And while that role required much of him as a man of character and as a man of faith and a man of integrity, you know, what I want you to see here is that in this instant, Joseph discovered his part to play as a man of reconciliation. Now, what's reconciliation? Reconciliation means to restore Uh, It means to return. It means to renew. You know, Joseph extended forgiveness to his brothers as a way of forgiving the past so that their relationship could be restored and renewed. It's about returning things to the way that they were meant to be. Now, anytime we talk about ancient stories like Joseph, and we've mentioned this before, you know, you you can't help but look at them and think, is that relevant? I mean, does that, does that have anything, you know, those are that was thousands of years ago. I mean, does it really apply in any way, shape, or form to my life today? Well, don't let the whole ancient Egypt thing, you know, uh, fool you. Because Joseph's story, it's your story and my story every single day. When we're presented with opportunities and circumstances and imperfect people, and you're married to one, and, and imperfect relationships... And deep personal wounds. I mean, every day, every single one of us runs up against some of the same circumstances, but same choices that Joseph had to make in a moment like this. 
And like Joseph, when it comes to facing some of those personal wounds or those great challenges or questions in your life, you've got a few choices to make. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I mean, there are, there are different paths, there are different responses that we can, we can make in each and every situation, especially as it, you know, it involves conflict. And the first path is the path of resignation. I mean, you can choose the path of resignation, and that is just pretend like it didn't happen. I'm going to put it behind me. I'm not going to deal with it. We're just going to move on. I mean, back up in Joseph's story, if you would. You know, Joseph's brothers are out looking for food. You know, 15, maybe as many as 20 years have passed. Joseph's been a slave in prison. Again, he's found this new role, you know, in Egypt. All this time has passed. What have his brothers been doing for the last 20 years? I mean, as far as we know, they never made any attempt to make contact with him to see if he was still alive. I mean, they knew approximately the direction that he had gone with this caravan. And Joseph's not innocent in this, too. I mean, you know, he knew where he could find his brothers. I mean, he's second in charge in Egypt. I think he can probably pull some strings. He could probably send out some delegates, some spies to go and find his family and to say, hey, your brother's still alive. I mean, somewhere along the line, someone could have taken the initiative to say, Let's mend this relationship. Let's see if we can repair this. But no one does that. I mean, every one of us is guilty to some degree of, uh, of just trying to put it behind us. Or I'm not going to really deal with the situation. Or I'm going to pretend like it never happened. And so we do that. And, and I'm not saying that there's not a time and a place for that. I and mean, you got to do that in your marriage. I mean, I remember when Jenny and I were... Uh, doing our premarital counseling. I remember the pastor always saying to us, you know, there's going to be a time to fight. There's going to be a time to argue and there's going to be a time to just laugh about it. You know, because if you deal with every little single instance, I mean, you're going to drive yourselves crazy. But, and, and so, you know, there's a time to just kind of put things behind and let's move on and let's not, you know, let, let, let's not add up things against one another. But there's also a time to deal with things too. And unfortunately, you know, when we, we just kind of pretend like it didn't happen or let's not really deal with the issue, you know, we'll just resign ourselves to the fact that it didn't happen. And we can become like strangers even living under the same roof. But Paul warns us of this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, when he says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, this verse doesn't say that you can't ever get angry. All right, because we're going to get angry, all right? But it's what we do with that anger. It's how we deal with that anger in us. Some people, that's their only contribution they make to the world is to be angry people. You know, it's just like when they're awake, they're angry. The only time they're not angry is when they're asleep. You know, and this verse doesn't say that, you know, you can be angry whenever you want until bedtime. But it's saying that you and I are personally responsible for that anger. We're personally responsible for those issues, you know. And when we choose to put them off or... I'm not going to deal with it. Well, as the verse says, I mean, it's like you're giving the devil a foothold. I mean, the door is trying to shut on it, but he's keeping it open. And he wants to keep it open. And he wants to make a greater hole. And he wants to create things like bitterness and a desire for revenge and anger. I mean, when we take the path of resignation and we're not dealing with conflict like we should, I mean, again, the evil one, he uses it to make a greater issue. Maybe out of something that maybe never should have become that great. Another path that we can take when it comes to conflict is, well, I mentioned a second ago, but you can choose the path of revenge. So you can choose the path of resignation. You can choose the path of revenge. I mean, revenge is what landed Joseph in slavery in Egypt in the first place. I mean, selling your brother into slavery is a bit vengeful, right? I mean, we'd all agree on that. 
And Joseph wasn't innocent in this either. I mean, years later, I mean, he's finally got the upper hand. We read about it, read about it a second ago. I mean, he's, he's just kind of putting his brothers through the ringer and playing mind games with them. Revenge and retaliation is all over this story. But, but we don't like to call it revenge, do we? Instead, we'll say, well, I'm just treating them like they treated me. Or I, I'm giving them a piece of what they deserve or what goes around comes around. And whatever form, you know, our reaction takes, whether it's talking behind their back or, you know, it might be something, you know, like throwing issues in their face over and over again. Or you know what we'll do? We'll drop them as a friend on Facebook. All right. I mean, we'll, you know, we'll go to that. Those like, you know what? I'm willing to be 13, you know, and drop you as a 13 year old on Facebook if I need to. But payback is payback. Revenge is revenge. I, I came across this story this past week. I think it's from a few years ago, but it says British shock radio host Tim Shaw may have finally learned a valuable lesson about the consequences of words while working as usual 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. shift. Shaw told the pinup girl he was interviewing on air that he was willing to leave his wife and two kids for her. Well, his wife was listening. Minutes later, his wife Haley created an eBay auction for her husband's car, a Lotus Esprit Turbo. The auction page was almost completely blank except for a picture of the car and the following words. I need to get rid of this car immediately, ideally in the next two to three hours before my cheating jerk husband gets home to find it gone and all of his belongings in the street. I am the registered owner and I have the registration. Please only buy it if you can pick it up tonight. Get this. Here's how it ended up. The car valued at approximately $45,000 was listed with a buy it now option of 50 pence or 90 cents. And the auction lasted exactly five minutes and three seconds before an anonymous buyer bought it and drove it away. Now, I think it's true. It was on the Internet. So it's true, right? I mean, if it's on the Internet, I mean, you can believe it. But you get the point, you know. But here's the thing. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says that you and I are not responsible for revenge. That's not my responsibility. The Bible says that, that God will take care of those things. And in due time, I mean, he, he will take care of each and every situation. But there's a third way, a third path. It's the way that Joseph chose, and it's the way of reconciliation. And in Joseph's story, his brothers were more than happy to go this way. As you can imagine, I mean, Joseph had them in a tight place, you know, and so they're more than willing to reconcile with their brothers. But too many times, you know, reconciliation isn't what we go looking for. I mean, doesn't it always seem to kind of work out like this? I mean, most of the time when someone has wronged you, it's like they don't care or they're not going to own up to it. They're not going to fess up to it. And, and so they're not going to demonstrate any willingness or any desire with you to make right of the situation. Or other times, you know, you may have been wounded or hurt or affected in some way by someone and they're just not around anymore. Or they remarried, they've moved on or maybe even passed away. And so we've got to ask the question of what does reconciliation and forgiveness look like when the other person isn't around? You know, or they're not interested. And one of the biggest myths of reconciliation or forgiveness is that you don't have to go there again if the other person isn't willing to live up to their end or their side of it. And the challenge of a situation like that is understandable. And unfortunately, it's common. And while reconciliation at its very, at its very best is a two-way street, 
reconciliation is still possible when the other person isn't around, doesn't care, or isn't willing. Because more than we realize, reconciliation is a work of your heart. That's where it happens. It's the work in our heart that God is wanting to do inside of us, and it affects our actions. It, it begins with, with forgiveness. You know, reconciliation, I, I like the way that one explained it. Reconciliation really means to forgive the debt. All right, there is a debt that is owed you. There was a wound created or maybe multiple wounds, and so there's this debt. You know, I feel like you owe me something because of what you've done to me, but reconciliation means to release the offender from the debt. Reconciliation is saying from this day forward, you know, you owe me nothing. And Joseph did that. I mean, he threw his brothers in jail, but ultimately he chose the path of reconciliation. Lewis Smedes is a best-selling author and an authority of sorts on this topic of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I love what he says specifically about Joseph and reconciliation. He says, Joseph set them free from prison, but they weren't the only ones who benefited. He was also the one who was set free. He was free from the hurt and the pain too. Now, where did Joseph find that strength to reconcile with his brothers? Well, I think it's possible that just one theory you could say that in a way he learned it from his dad and from his uncle. And let me tell you what I mean by this. Early on in Joseph's life, he got a picture of what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like. He got to see it firsthand. And just to give you a little background, you know, Joseph's father was a man named Jacob. And Jacob had a brother named Esau. All right. And if you go back in Genesis a bit, you can read about them. And well, they had a soured relationship as many years before Jacob had swindled his brother Esau of sorts out of a a birthright or an inheritance that was due to him. So years passed and Jacob and Esau have nothing to do with one another. And as you read in the Bible, their families have grown really into two small armies And there's this scene in Genesis 33 when Esau is pursuing Jacob, pursuing him as one army would pursue another. And and he's really got Jacob cornered. And if you read it for yourself, you know, you'll you'll just see, you know, that this is going to be the end for Jacob. And Esau is going to seek revenge once and for all. But it doesn't end like that. Instead, in Genesis 33, it says that they met face to face. And it was the first time in a really long time. And there was this peace that was made between the two of them. There was this forgiveness that took place, this reconciliation. I mean, it's, it, it, their relationship was, it was, beginning the pro, it was being put back together the way that it was always intended to be. And of all of the children that Jacob had, and remember, he's got 12 of them. The Bible says in Genesis 33, it calls out one by the name, a boy named Joseph. Who, who got a front row seat and witnessed this forgiveness and reconciliation taking place in its purest form, its very best. And so where did Joseph learn the importance of reconciliation? Well, to a degree, you could say that he learned it from his dad and he learned it from his uncle. And as I thought of that, I just couldn't help think, you know, moms and dads especially, how often do your kids get a front row seat for forgiveness and reconciliation in your house? You know, two imperfect people, I'll take responsibility for my side of this or I'll take responsibility for my side of this. I need to say I'm sorry. 
I mean, how often do your kids get to see that? How often do your kids hear you talk about your family favorably or talk about a so-called friend from the past? I mean, what words are they hearing come out of your mouth? I mean, if you're a supervisor or a manager of employees, you know, you probably make some mistakes. Do your employees ever get to hear you say, you know what, I made a mistake. I'm going to own up to my side in this. You know, Joseph learned reconciliation from Jacob and Esau. He saw it from them, no doubt, but more importantly, his ability to reconcile came from nowhere else but God. And as Esau reconciled with Jacob, and Joseph would later do with his brothers, you and I too are commanded to take the path of reconciliation in our relationships over and over again. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote these words down. He was talking to Christians. He's talking to people like you and me today. And he says that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, you and I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. I mean, I read this verse for myself and I'm reminded that only God can save. You know, he is the author and the finisher of salvation that God made a way back to himself. In other words, he canceled the debt. And because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, I I can have a relationship with God because he has forgiven the debt. He has reconciled the sin that was hanging over my head. And he did that through Jesus Christ. You know, I love the words that Paul uses. He specifically says that God no longer counts my sins against me. And if he's no longer counting my sins against me, then why would I have the right to count sins against someone else? You know, the word counting was a term used for calculating the financial debt of someone again, the the good news is that through Jesus Christ, as the text says, God is no longer calculating my debt against me. And the good news for you too is that if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He's not doing that against you either. He's forgiven that. He's reconciled that. And that's the good news that the Apostle Paul experienced in his life, you know, to be saved, to be forgiven, to be reconciled. And because of this, and because of the knowledge of that in his life, he was allowing it to change him. And it had everything the way that, to do with the way that he preached and the, everything to, with, with how he treated others and his willingness and his desire to forgive others because it, it, it began with the work that God had done for him in Jesus Christ. And here's the truth. What God had in mind for Paul You know, the same is true for those of you here today that know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. As followers of Jesus, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You know, your life and my life and our actions and the way that we treat others in our relationships, you know, is about joining God. It really is about joining God in the greater work of reconciliation that he's doing in this world. You know, the work of our God today, the work of this church, the work of you and me and everything that we do is about joining God in the work that he is doing to put things back together the way they were always meant to be. And so you might think that that conflict that you have with your in-laws right now, well, that's just the way it is and that's the way it's always going to be. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, be reminded today that God has given you the ministry of reconciliation and even in your attempts... 
You are playing a part in the work that he is doing to put things back together the way they were always meant to be. It's the case for your home and your marriage right now that even in your attempts to forgive and to say I'm sorry once again, I'm not counting your sins or your mistakes against you. And I am joining God in the work that he is doing to put things back together the way they were always meant to be. You know, reconciliation is so much more than mending broken relationships. The ministry of reconciliation is about anything and everything that we do that could potentially help someone else be reconciled to God. And your willingness to forgive, it could, prov- it, it could, it could possibly lead to, it could provide the framework for someone else to see what God has done for them in Jesus. And that's why everything that we do here, it matters. It's why leading a connection group matters. It's why serving in our Gen Kids ministry or with our students matters. It's why serving as an artist on this stage, it matters. It's why telling somebody about Jesus or giving generously, you know, from the financial resources that you have or inviting someone else to church, it matters because in each and every attempt, you are doing your work in this part of this ministry of reconciliation because God's greater hope is for his children to come home, to be reconciled back to God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. I want to share with you one last story. just want to read it to you briefly, and, uh, and then we'll close. But just, just a great example, an extreme example, but a great example of how this works. It goes like this. In 1984, she was 16 years old, driving to school, took her eyes off the road for a second to reach down and grab some lipstick. And in that split second, she hit a woman on the side of the road who was riding her bike. Shannon got out of the car, realized what she had done, and ran to a neighbor's home to call 911. But when the paramedics got there, it was too late. The woman had died, just like that. And suddenly, the gravity of everything that had happened to her began to sink in. She'd taken the life of a person, someone's wife, someone's mother, ruined a family, and maybe her own too. She was only 16 years old, remember. This had to be the lowest moment of her life. But what Shannon didn't realize at the time was that the woman she had killed was a woman named Marjorie Jarster. And she and her husband, Gary, were devoted Christ followers, loved the Lord. And when Gary found out that his wife had been killed, even though he was angry, grieved and experiencing all of the emotions anyone would feel, he knew what it meant to be a part of this greater work of reconciliation. So before his wife's funeral, he invited Shannon over to his house to meet him. Can you imagine? Like, can you imagine to be that girl and to make that drive and to take steps? Uh, Well, here's what Shannon wrote. She said, I took one step inside the entry door and I saw him down the hallway and he came running toward me, not with animosity in his eyes at all, but with his arms open. And that afternoon, the two of them sat down, a widower and the one who was responsible for his wife's death. And he told her about Jesus. And he said to her, I don't want you to let this ruin your life. God wants to use you through this. As a matter of fact, I'm passing Marjorie's legacy of being a godly woman on to you. And I want you to learn to love Jesus without limits the way that Marjorie did. The story continues that he never pressed charges against Shannon. And this 16-year-old girl went on to become a devoted Christ follower, a Christian speaker, and writer. Uh, Shannon Etheridge wrote the book, Every Woman's Battle. It's sold over one million copies today and has helped numerous women and marriages. And, and this, this brave, bold ministry of reconciliation, again, it's, it's a great example, but a great example of one instance of reconciliation and forgiveness played a greater part in God's work, His message, 
of the hope of Jesus Christ to this world. Again, Paul says, as Christians, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. To say no to it is to sin. To sin against God. And I know that if you hear a story like that, if you hear a story like Shannon's, if you're like me, you're like, I have no idea how I could ever possibly even begin to think about forgiving someone like that in this moment. But the truth is that forgiveness and love and reconciliation, especially of this magnitude, and really of every magnitude for that matter, is only possible by the power of God in us. I mean, you could only do this through the spirit of Jesus in you. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, that power, God himself, is inside of you too. And it's the spirit of Jesus that can give us the ability to reconcile and to forgive and to even begin to understand that if Jesus Christ could do that for me, then I guess I could do that for him or I could de- guess I could do that for her too. And so my question for you is today, who do you need to reconcile with? Is there a person? What do you need to do? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story and for these reminders and for this command today. I don't know how it could be any clearer for us. Um, Whatever I could do to mess that up, God, I pray that you'd straighten all that out and that we would hear from you. But I will say that just because we know it or we hear it doesn't mean that it's easy. And to hear it here and to walk out of this door and to put it into practice. Well, God, we just have to acknowledge that that's a different story. And so we need you. And we need your power and we need your spirit in us. God, we need your strength to go and do those things that we can't do on our own. God, I believe that this room is just filled with people today, me included, that need help in this area of reconciliation and forgiveness, Lord. And I pray right now that through the power of your spirit, maybe for every person here, maybe there's a face, maybe there's a name. There could be a memory. And God, I I don't want to minimize the seriousness of some of those situations, God. And so we have to trust you. We have to trust you for next steps and for wisdom. But I, I just have a hunch that maybe for others, it's really a lot easier than we think it is as we understand that it's a work of our heart. And so, God, I pray and I believe that maybe you're starting a work with some, maybe you're continuing a work with others today. And and what I'm asking, Lord, is that you would show us next steps. And that no matter how difficult it may be, I pray that obedience is our response today. Then in any and every situation and all that we do as we experience things today and tomorrow, Lord, I just pray that word of reconciliation would come to our minds. Help us to embrace it. Show us again what it looks like, Lord. Give us the strength to see it through. I pray for those that may be struggling in this area today. God, I pray for me. I need help in this area too. As we continue, if every head bowed and every eye closed, you know, again, I I just think the power, there's so much power in those words that God is no longer counting my sin against me. You know, the only way that you can have the power and the ability to forgive is by having Christ in you. And I want you to hear the good news today. And you need to hear the good news. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ came. He he came as God's gift to you into this world and he gave his life and, and he reconciled this issue of sin, but you have to take it. 
Like you have to take that truth and that good news in your life. You have to say with your own mouth, I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. God, forgive me of my sins today. And the Bible tells us that he will wipe our slate clean and he never again sees us the same. He always sees us with Jesus. And so I just wonder if there's somebody here today that needs to forgiveness, that experience, that new beginning, that forgiveness, that new beginning in their life. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you'd like to receive him into your life today, just slip your hand up where you are right now. Um, I'm not going to call you out by name. I promise I won't do that. But just as a way of saying I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today. And and if that's you, just, just pray this prayer with me. God, I thank you for the gift of Jesus. I need his power and his strength in my life today. God, forgive me of my sins. Change me today. And teach me how to live like your son. God, we thank you for your message of truth. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you that you've extended reconciliation to us. And because you did it, we can do it as well. God, show us the next steps how to live our lives obediently, all for you and all for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.